been an absolute joy for me to be here with you this weekend. Uh, a little over a period of 24 hours, I got to spend time with you and got to know you a little bit. And uh, I uh, rejoice in the Lord to see and enjoy uh, something of your warmth and vibrancy and sincerity in the Lord. And uh, even though I didn't get to meet all of you individually and visit with you, I do know my love and affection towards you in the Lord Jesus, and I do hope in the Lord that there will be future opportunities perhaps to uh, strengthen the bonds of fellowship. Um, as uh, has been mentioned, I will have to duck out right after the um, preaching to drive back to Duluth, so I regret the uh, chance not to um, spend some time with you over the Word of God, but I trust that in the Spirit you are uh, going to be blessed. Several of you have mentioned to me your love for uh, the Duluth area in the North Shore. And um, if you ever do come up, and I do hugely encourage you to do so uh, for the natural beauty of the area. In my estimation, it's the most beautiful area uh, east of the Garden of Eden, and at least from uh, May to about October. So um, do plan to visit around the Lord's Day, spend Lord's Day with us, worship with us, Grace Presbyterian Church, and um, um, uh, if you need lodging, my wife and I would love to open our home to host you, and really the invitation extends to all of you for our saints in this congregation, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll be our delight to spend some time with you in Christian fellowship, so do keep that in mind, and uh, do hope to see uh, some of you again in the future. Um, we're going to turn this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I invite you to turn in your copy of the scripture to that passage. And I realized that there is a passage always projected behind me. I did not realize that when I opened last night. Um, but uh, having seen in the previous two messages something of the importance of beholding our God, and particularly in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, we've considered a message, behold your God, and behold a man, behold the son born of a woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to finish uh, our uh, reflections on this theme of beholding the glory of God uh, with the key verse that uh, John mentioned earlier, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And that is going to be our key verse but I do want to read the surrounding passage that begins in verse 1 of chapter 3, and we'll continue down to uh, verse 7 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So it will be a little bit of a lengthy reading, but do keep in mind that our main focus this evening will be on verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In the context, the Apostle Paul is defending the authenticity of the apostolic ministry he's been entrusted with against the so-called super-apostles, those who were impressive speakers, those who came with more palatable messages. And here the Apostle Paul, a humanly unimpressive figure, even a despised man, uh, with only one message and one method entrusted to him, is seeking to defend the authenticity and the power of the ministry entrusted to him. We preach Christ and him crucified. We preach the whole counsel of God. And as we come to this passage, uh, you'll notice that the, um, really the whole uh, section deals with a running contrast between what was true in the days of Moses and what is now true of the new covenant since the coming death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ministry that you get to sit under as believers in the new covenant. So keep that in mind as we read. And I want to speak to you tonight, and rather I want the Bible to speak to you tonight about beholding the glory of God and being changed into the likeness of His glory as you do so. Um, before we hear God's word read and preach to us, let's once again uh, unite our hearts and seek God's face and ask for His blessing. Let's pray together. Great God and our Heavenly Father, our blessed Lord, we thank you that you are the God who, uh, from all of eternity, uh, elected to send your Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world uh, to glorify your name, uh, to gather and perfect your saints unto full maturity, reflecting the likeness of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Lord, we thank you that we in Christ have been predestined for adoption, that we may be conformed to the image of the Son, so that Christ 
might be the firstborn among many brothers, and we come uh, as the family of God, looking onto our elder brother, uh, beholding his glory, and asking you tonight afresh in the power of your spirit to unfold before us the immeasurable and unsearchable riches of your son. So help us to do so, uh, both in preaching and in listening, and may your name be hallowed in this place, and may that carry us into tomorrow as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. And all this we pray in the name of your beloved Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in its exceeded in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is failed, it is failed to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. But thanks be to God that he has spoken to us this evening. When was the last time you 
either heard the word ministry or used the word ministry. All of us are so accustomed to thinking about ministry either demographically or sociologically or geograph geographically. You hear it described all the time in terms of its context and recipients, college ministry, inner city ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry, English ministry, the list goes on and on. But I wonder if you ever use that term theologically in terms of its essence and its nature in the New Covenant. And what we want to focus on tonight, the ministry that you sit under whenever the Word of God is publicly opened in the church, the ministry which the risen Christ has entrusted to the elders of the church as under-shepherds to be guardians and dispensers of, is the ministry concerning the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you ever think of the ministry in that theological manner. But here's a passage that recalibrates your thinking and reminds you afresh that the ministry that we sit under is the ministry unlike the ministry the old covenant people of God enjoyed in the administration of Moses. It is described in our passage as a ministry of the letter, ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, the law of God, although reflecting the holy character of God in and of itself has no resource or power to save. But by contrast, the ministry that we now sit under is called the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry leading unto far exceeding glory. And this is a conviction with which you must function in the church of Jesus Christ, that what you possess as believers in Christ is of surpassing worth and far surpassing privilege that none of the old covenant believers had yet enjoyed in its fullness. And here Paul, you notice throughout this passage, indeed presents before us a running contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. He takes us through a sweeping, broad, redemptive historical contrast between the ministry of Moses in its temporary and external character and what is now true of the ministry of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and by extension, the gospel ministry that is handed down from the apostles and entrusted to the church. Just quickly glance over, for example, verse 7, the ministry which produced death. Verse 9, the ministry of condemnation that can never lead to salvation. And by contrast, the new covenant ministry, verse 9, is the ministry that gives life and imparts righteousness, the ministry of the Spirit. And as Paul seeks to defend this ministry he's been entrusted with from the risen Christ, what is a validation of the genuine gospel work that he sets forth uh, before the Corinthian believers who are so easily led astray? Verse 3, Paul says, he uh, puts putting forward the lives of God's people. He says, a believer's life, uh, in a real sense, is like a letter. It's like an apostolic epistle written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And here's the New Covenant reality. God means to display the glory of the Lord Jesus, not just on paper, but in the lives of his redeemed people as living epistles to be taken up and read by all to see. As the law of God and the whole word of God is inscribed in your mind and in your inner man, the whole of your life is going to be transformed after the pattern of the whole counsel of God that speaks of and reveals the glory of his son. And verse 18, leading us to the crescendo of the passage, he, uh, Paul says, uh, he, the Lord, is changing you into the image of his own glory. Or he expresses it very um, gloriously condensed manner and yet so packed with truth 
that rejoices our, our heart. We all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If someone asks you, what is the most significant thing God is doing? You hear that kind of question all the time in a context like this at a spiritual retreat. And the controlled answer that the scripture sets before you is that God is conforming you to the image of his beloved son. Now, what does the scripture mean when it says glory? We use it all the time. The glory of the Lord. Glory. Psalm 29 beginning with the voice of the Lord that is majestic, ends with the cry of all the saints in his temple. Glory. What is this word? Well, in the Hebrew, the word kabod uh, really captures the idea of weight or the weightiness or heaviness. You measure, in a real sense, worth of something in terms of its weight. We even have expressions in the English language, people say you are worth your weight of gold. The glory of God is the display, outward shining of his worthiness. It's the outshining and the effulgence of his character. So glory is always linked to the language of worship in the scriptures. Worthy are thou. He is worthy to be praised. The very word worship is in fact uh, comes from the idea of worship. How worthy God is, and you are prostrating before the God of everlasting glory. And uh, that's the ultimate purpose God has in everything. The terminus point, the omega point of everything that God is about. The God of the Bible has one obsession in all that he has purposed and in all that he executes in his providence. If I can put it rather reverently, God's obsession is the display of his own glory to reveal the glory of his character. And the glory of God truly is the grand obsession of the triune God in all that the Godhead is involved. So when God created the world, we read in the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God in Isaiah as the earth is full of his glory. And the pinnacle of creation, man, is made in the image of that glory. The whole creation, in other words, is a theater for the display of the glory of God. It is all the more true in God the Son, from womb to tomb, the whole of his earthly life and ministry as the servant of the Lord was taken up with the glory of the Lord. So it was said of Jesus' incarnation at his birth in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father and looking over the totality of his life in his priest, high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, this was a summary statement that Jesus gave. John chapter 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. At his death on the cross, this was also his chief concern. Right at the moment, Judas went out to betray Jesus, and the shadow of the cross begins to lengthen and project into the soul of Jesus. Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. As we mentioned before, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the place where God's character is most splendidly displayed for all to behold. And the law, which is incapable of saving sinners, is yet a perfect expression and reflection of the perfect character of God is good and holy and righteous, and in a real sense, the law redounds with the glory of God. And if the preoccupation of God the Father in the work of creation, it's a preoccupation of God the Son in the work of redemption, it's all about the glory of God. The amazing thing that we read in this passage is that the preoccupation of the Spirit of God in the lives of his people, in the work of sanctification, is also the glory of the triune God. Again, as we see described here in verse 18, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into one degree of glory to another. And notice what comes next. This comes from the Lord, who is 
the spirit. And if you are any thoughtful Christian, that poses a question. How can the Lord Jesus be spoken of as being the spirit? Is the Apostle Paul advocating a heresy? Is it collapsing the distinctions between the second and the third persons of the Trinity? How can he say that this comes from the Lord, meaning Jesus, the risen Christ, who is the Spirit? Of course, Apostle John is not confusing the two persons of the Godhead, but there is now such a functional identification, if you will, upon the resurrection and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ by his resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Just as in the garden in Genesis 2, God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. Now upon his resurrection, the last Adam became a living being who breathed into people's lives. And Jesus, upon his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father, as a sign of his exaltation, received from the hand of the Father the Spirit. There's a man in heaven who came in full possession of the Spirit, the man who then poured out the Spirit upon the church on the day of Pentecost. And what Paul is highlighting here is that upon the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, we now know the Spirit of, the Spirit of God only in exclusive connection with the exalted Lord Jesus. The spirit who dwells in you, believers, is the spirit of the risen Christ. The spirit who dwells in you is the spirit of the exalted Savior. If the spirit of God is in you, then Christ dwells in you by his spirit. Since there is such a functional identification, what the uh, spirit of God is doing in your life is what Christ is doing in your life. If the Spirit of God is in you because you are indeed in Him, Jesus Christ is in you by faith. And by the working of the Spirit, Paul says the glory of God is, as it were, being inscribed into your character and life by the Spirit. And what is the essence of this new covenant ministry? Never think of the ministry in terms of demographics or sociological distinctions, even languages. The ministry you sit under in the church of Jesus Christ concerns exclusively the glory of your Savior who dwells in you. Which ministry, of course, comes until the day of glory through the word of God, the scriptures God has given onto the church. Now this is a sheer breathtaking thing to ponder what is taking place in the lives of God's people who have been redeemed and united to the Lord Jesus. And Paul here puts forth Moses as a parable of a sort. Paul is thinking about what happened in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and then Moses coming down from the mountain with two tablets of stone, and apparently his face was shining from the glory of his divine presence so that a veil has to be placed over his face so that the people would not look and die. Such a brilliant radiance shining on Moses' human face from being in the presence of God that a veil had to be placed so that the rest of the people sitting at the camp uh, at the bottom of the mountain would not gaze that glory directly. And that is put forth to highlight the limited nature of the mosaic economy. And let me just give you three main distinctions which you now fully enjoy as privileged believers in Jesus Christ. Whereas in the days of Moses in the Old Testament era, this ministry that was once given unto the Old Testament church was selective and limited. Chapter 3, verse 7, we read that only Moses 
had access to his glory. But it is now in Jesus Christ's inclusive thing. Verse 18 says, We all, all the people of God, all believers, with unveiled face, gaze and behold the glory of God. Now, secondly, there was a transient and fading character to what Moses experienced. The radiance of God's glory was shining on Moses' face, but once he came down a mountain, that brilliant effulgence was fading away and not permanent. And yet, by contrast, Paul says, the glory that God is working in you is an eternal weight of glory. What happened on Mount Sinai is truly a parable of what the old covenant was coming to. It was coming to an end. It was, an, uh, it was not a permanent administration. The glory rather you enjoy under the ministry you sit under is the glory that will endure eternally. It's not just glory that's um, uh, transient and fading, but by contrast, it's going to be a glory that is permanent and ever-increasing. Not fading away, but keep on building on and ever-increasing from one degree of glory to another. And thirdly, the mosaic administration had only a physical and outward expression in the enjoyment of glory. The glory of God glowed on Moses' face. The glory of God only, uh, in a sense, shined on his skin. But by contrast, our experience as believers is rather inward and internal. Again, chapter 3, Paul says, the Spirit of God is writing God's word and working God's glory on tablets of human hearts. There is an inward transformation that is taking place in the lives of every uh, people of God. There's a weight of character being formed within you. Your inner man is being changed. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, you are being transformed through the renewal of your mind. Although your outer frame is being wasted away, your inner man is being renewed day by day. What is the ministry Jesus has entrusted the church producing and working within you? And the answer that the scriptures give you is the, it's the everlasting glory that will never fade away that is being worked in your inner man internally and inwardly. Let us pause for a second and ponder. Next time when people use the word ministry, make it a habit in your own mind to always filter that word through the grid of the glory of God rather than human categories. And this is what God is about in the lives of his people. This is the fixed terminal point of your redeemed life, the purposes of glory that God has decreed from before the foundation of the world for you. Why is that the Lord Jesus, your Savior, laid down his life? Why did he pay the penalty for your sins? Well, salvation in the gospel is not just being saved from sins. Salvation in the gospel in the truest sense is restoring unto you what you have lost on account of your sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in a marvelous way, the triune God is working as the saving God to restore 
something of the weight of that glory reflected in you as it comes from his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice again our main text, verse 18. Paul says, This is, at all times, the most significant thing that is happening under the ministry of the Word of God. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed or changed into the same image of glory. The word there, to give you a vivid imagery in your mind, the Greek word there is really the same word we get the English word metamorphosed. Or another way of translating that word is the word transfigured. Even as Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the glory for brief moments penetrated through his human veil of his human flesh so that the glory could not be contained in his humanity in the same way as Jesus was transfigured on the mountain inwardly every believer is being metamorphosed or transfigured from one degree of glory to another and that is happening in you brothers and sisters because you are the redeemed now notice, notice three things about that work that God is doing. Just look down again carefully in verse 18. I want to point out three important truths about what is happening in your own life. Well, first of all, uh, verse 18 says, This is the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has one grand passion in his ministry and that is to exalt the Lord Jesus that is to glorify the Lord Jesus and the way he does so in your life is by revealing Christ to you and forming Christ in you and that same spirit is changing you this is the work of the Holy Spirit he glorifies Jesus Christ in your life by replicating what was true of the Lord's life in your life by changing you from one degree of glory and this comes Paul says from the Lord who is the Spirit but then secondly this is a work that is accomplished through God's appointed means again Paul says it is as we behold the glory of the Lord that this transformation is taking place and now the significant question is of course how do we behold the glory of the Lord? Where is it that believers are to behold the glory of the Lord? Where is it that we go to contemplate the glory of the Lord? And there's only one place God has appointed where you may behold the glory of God, and that is the Holy Scriptures. It is by gazing into the Word of God that you discover something of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ who is preached in the scriptures. And so it's not some visions, it's not some dreams, it's not some programs. None of these things can produce this. It's the word of God as God's appointed means whereby believers may exclusively find the vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus and it is as you gaze into his face as unfolded in the pages of the scriptures as you behold and contemplate the glory of the Lord it is as you place yourself under the ministry of the word both publicly and privately in your own reading it is as you spend time in God's word it is as you behold your God there that you are being changed into further glory. Now every mature Christian believer, and you can sense this spiritually sensitive people, 
surely notice this. Every mature believer about whom there is a touch of glory, you'll always discover that that person has been exposed and has exposed and opened his soul up to gaze upon God in his word and consistently has been under the ministry of the new covenant, under the ministry of the word. You cannot grow as Christians without giving yourself to gazing into the scriptures. There's no other means God has appointed to accomplish this glorious end. But not only is this the work of the Spirit and this is accomplished by God's appointed means of the scripture, but then thirdly, this is a work, Paul says in verse 18, that is lifelong in its duration. Notice the verb tense is present continuous. You are being changed. It's not some momentary action. It is something that ongoingly continues in the lives of believers from the moment of their conversion by the work of God's grace until the day of your entry into the glory of God's presence at the moment of your death. Until that very day, you are being transformed. In other words, there's no shortcut in spiritual growth. Christian believers never arrive and you coast the rest of the way. You are constantly being changed. No Christian believer, no Christian congregation is ever spiritually static. You are being transformed and transfigured from one degree of glory to another. You go from strength to strength when your heart is set on Zion as pilgrim, Psalm 84. And this is what God promises in his faithfulness. From the day of the dawning of God's grace in your life until the day of your departure out of this world. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And until that day, you are being transformed. This is not a work of a single day or overnight or even a month or a year, but this is lifelong in its duration. But notice how there are obstacles that oppose this glorious work of transformation into the glory of God. You notice the veil imagery that runs through the passage and notice the two types of veils uh, that are mentioned. Those two types in a real sense tell us about the Adamic condition, the fallen human condition. Human beings made in the image of God, yet blind to the glory of God and fall short of it and in fact exchange the glory of God for creatures. Chapter 3 Paul first mentions the mosaic veil Whenever Moses is read, veil is placed upon people with their hardened hearts. It's as though when people turn to the law and seek to rely on the works of their human flesh and seek to be justified by their human righteousness, and when they turn to the law that is even written in their own conscience and seek to gain salvation by human means, there's this veil that keeps them from gazing at the glory of the Lord. And that's the first veil that exists in the human condition. People with hardened hearts. It's because they did not turn away from Moses to Christ. As Paul says in verse 17, only when one turns to the Lord, this veil is removed. But then notice the second veil. Not just there is a mosaic veil, but chapter 4, verse 4, tells us of a satanic veil. The gods of this age have blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ, so that there is a veil. Our gospel is veiled towards them. 
What is the explanation, brothers and sisters, when you go to your classroom or your workplace and your classmates and your coworkers or neighbors, they do not know anything about the Lord Jesus, have no interest in them. When you seek earnestly to share something of the truth from the Bible, it's thrown right back at you. There's no response whatsoever. The answer that the Bible gives is that it's because there is this double veil that covers over human hearts, the mosaic veil of human righteousness and the satanic veil of the darkness of the world. And yet, in the gospel, there is spiritual unveiling such that the human heart, one stony heart, turning into the heart of flesh, has seen the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul, in verse 6, likens that transformation to the power of God at work in Genesis 1 creation when God said, let there be light. The same God who created the world speaks with such creative power into his human hearts. The veil is removed from their hearts to see the glory. So that's the human condition. For you, this is the most glorious, exciting work you can ponder. Spiritually, God is transforming you through and by the word of God. All your days, you are being transformed. Increasingly so. And yet unbelievers, in their hardened and darkened hearts of understanding, do not see the glory of Christ. Now, if that's the most important thing that's going on, no matter where you are tonight or no matter what season you may be going through spiritually, and in Christian living, you must be absolutely realistic about your Christian progress. Because if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you readily know from experience that your Christian progress, if you are to graph that, if you should chart that with a graph, it's never a straight line. Our spiritual growth is never mechanical, but horticultural, John Owen says. It's not a mechanical straight line graph, but like the growth of a plant, it has ups and downs, and it has dormant period, and then certain uh, periods of growth spurts, and then nothing seems to be happening. The graph in the progress of a spiritual life is never spiritual, it is never straight line and mechanical. But if you know this truth, that as you gaze the glory of the Lord, you are being transformed inwardly, and surely it should give you a great courage, a great confidence and great hope and great encouragement. So as we finish, I just want to leave you with three words of exhortation. As you think of the ministry under which you sit by the grace of God in the goodness of your Savior, Paul says, first of all, Christian believers, do not ever lose heart. Take heart. Verse 12 of chapter 3 and since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are sitting under a ministry that leads to far exceeding glory. No matter what causes of discouragement comes to you in your own Christian living, in the life of congregation, in the ministry, for those of you who have been entrusted with the ministry of the Lord Jesus, you never lose heart. Take heart. Because beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed. Be hopeful about yourself. And this is a matter of faith. And many things that come into life that causes you to lose heart. And Paul says, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not 
lose heart. Christian life is simply keep on keeping on. Do not yield to discouragement. Later in this section, Paul goes on to say, we are not knocked down by the pressures and trials around us, afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken. Because this is the surpassing glory of what God has called all of us into. As Paul will later say at the end of chapter 4, even the sufferings and the afflictions of this age are preparing in you an everlasting weight of glory. That's the first thing you need to do. Take heart and never lose heart. Don't be consumer-oriented to be discouraged so that you turn to methods of secular marketing to make your spiritual life go or make the church go. The ministry entrusted in your midst is the ministry of glory. But then secondly, Paul says, keep sight, do not lose sight. You keep your eyes gazing on the Lord Jesus who reveals his glory to you in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12, fix your eyes on Christ and run the race with perseverance setting aside every weight of sin that hinders you in the process. Do not lose sight. Keep sight. Keep your eyes focused upon the Lord Jesus. And that's the battle in your life. As Jesus himself says in Luke's Gospel, if your eyes are healthy, then the whole of your life, the whole of your body is healthy. And finally, Do not lose your heart. Do not lose sight. And thirdly and finally, uh, keep in the fight. Persevere in the fight. Christian life is a long marathon journey. It's a good fight of the faith. You are to wait. You are to persevere to the end. If you are to be transformed all the way to glory, being transformed in one degree of glory to another, The implication is you don't drop out of the race, you keep on going. In fact, the warning in the scripture abounds, Hebrews chapter 4, likening the church to the wilderness generation in the Old Testament. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but rather respond by faith until the day of your entry into the Sabbath rest of glory. You keep on going, and to that end, God has given you essentially two things. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. You have the word of God, living and active, double-edged sword. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Draw near to the throne of grace. You have prayer. Christians fight, persevere by diligent use of the means of grace God has given you. What are those means of grace? Westminster uh, Shorter and Larger Catechisms helpfully spell them out for you. Word, prayer, and sacraments. So that's what it means to be a New Covenant believer sitting under the ministry that Christ has sent into the church. It's a ministry of the Spirit. It's a ministry dispense to you in the ministry of the word. And as you are directed in your gaze to the glory of the Lord, who speaks there, whose glory is revealed there, the Lord promises you that you are being transformed into Christ-likeness until the day when you shall see him face to face. And as you shall see him as he is, you too will be like him as you see him with your own eyes. That's a glorious gospel, salvation, and the end, omega point of your redeemed life. And God has done so, ultimately not for your blessedness and not for your salvation. That's only the penultimate 
purpose in all that God does, God has done so in order to display His own glory. And that ultimately is the chief end of man. What is chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, may you be given God's grace to grow in your capacity to do so as individuals and as a church fellowship together. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the inexpressible gift of your Spirit who comes to dwell in us, who reveals uh, your glory to us in the Lord Jesus, who brings us into true joy and fellowship as your church. We pray for this particular congregation of the Lord Jesus as uh, their shepherd, O oh God. We pray that you would continually gather them and nurture them and grow them and build them up in faith and cause them to walk in a manner of the, uh, worthy of the Lord and pray that the word of God will abound in this place and cause true growth that will last and true fruitfulness that will redound to your praise and true weight of glory that will one day be uh, revealed uh, when Jesus Christ returns. So bless this word and this weekend and pray that uh, all the souls here would be found persevering all the way to the end, going from glory to glory. We entrust them to your care and ask that you would richly shower upon your blessing and cause them to know through your strength what's the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. Our knowledge puffs up, but the love builds up. And we pray that you would abundantly share abroad in their hearts the love of God in the saving gospel. We ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.